Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. We talk about jerk rice. Yes, we do. We also are joined by Emily Andrews of the Institute for Government to talk about public sector spending. Plus, we lift the lid on my cover story about a looming Labour split. It's going to happen, people. That's what Stephen says. He's always right. Stephen, do we have to talk about jerk rice? I think we should talk about jerk rice. Okay. Partly because we should recommend, uh, there's a brilliant clip that our listeners should check out on by ITV News, where they went round Brixton and got a bunch of people to taste uh, Jamie Oliver's. Sorry, in case you have missed, I, I don't know how anyone could have missed the you, most important political you've, story you've of missed the week. This. Um, so Jamie Oliver has a product called Jerk Style Rice. Jerk Rice, I think. I think I don't think he's even put the style. The Weasley no. style would be very helpful. Which is odd because so so jerk arguably can mean two things, right? Now the original phrase for it. It literally means barbecued or grilled. Uh, now, obviously, rice is not barbecued or, or grilled. However, if you have ever made jerk for yourself at home, or you've had it cooked for you at a friend's home, they have not made it on a barbecue either. You can do it in an oven grill, or you can, if if you want, you can even, uh, if you're feeling spectacularly lazy, not that I or anyone I know has ever just decided they couldn't be bothered to watch the grill, you can actually just do it in the bottom of the oven as well. I, my assumption was that jerk was a, sp- a particular spice rub that you put on meat. Well, so the the etymology of the word refers to it being cooked on on a grill, but like yes, tandoori the, being cooked in a tandoor. Yeah, but the but again, as and that that is of the exact uh, metaphor because obviously you can cook a perfectly good. Uh, you do not need a tandoor oven to cook tandoori chicken well, uh, but a jerk has several essential components. Uh, Scotch bonnet chilies. Uh, I'm not going to try and list them unaided because I will forget one. But but to me, at least, I would say the the, the thing which I would absolutely send any if I ordered uh, jerk chicken in a in a restaurant and it came without allspice, that would be the thing I would feel one from taste. You would immediately it would taste wrong, right? And like that, paella without a saf- saf- yeah, saffron. Yeah. yeah. So now the the, the fact the some people have said so well, Jamie Oliver's jerk chick, jerk rice doesn't have all spice in it. It doesn't have all spice. It, it has chili. It, no, it has jalapenos. Right. It has. I mean, the weird thing is, is it is a pie. It's not a good pie. I too succumbed to um, curiosity and tried it. I didn't. So the brilliant thing about this ITV clip is, there's a moment where a woman tries it, and you can tell she thinks, "I don't want to swallow this, but I also don't want to spit it out <laughs> on television." <laughs> so she looks kind of panicked at the camera for what feels like quite a long time, and then turns around. 
<laughs> no, just, just turns around. To, into a handkerchief. But obviously, there's no way that you can discreetly spit your food out on television. Not so when it's rice as well, because it's not really a big mass. No, the evacuation is not seamless. But this is all a closed door to me because I don't really eat anything with chili in it. Remember that very famous sketch, um, the goodness gracious me did. Oh, the uh, butter chicken. Um, where they go to an English restaurant and they all laugh and they'll go, "I want the blandest thing on the menu." Yeah, that's me. That's me, IRL. Um, so I, yeah, I I'd stray up as far as uh, I will have a chicken tikka masala. But anytime I ever go to the cinnamon club, when I have like, I very rarely lunch people in Westminster, I have to sometimes ask for you know they do bangras and mash, which is their spicy um, sausage. I have to have a lassie as well, just in case of of emergency needing milk. Oh, that is the saddest thing I've ever. I'm, the, I'm one of the whitest people ever who ever um, lived. Yeah, but so the reason why this row has become political rather than you know culinary i've suddenly realized this row basically is like someone invented a silly season story just for me um it's got everything not it, least because you've got to eat some rice yeah is uh, is um is the dawn butler described it as cultural appropriation she's now shadow minister she was shadow minister for diverse communities but now she's, she's also uh, now she's shadow secretary of state for women and equalities right so I thought that the interesting thing about this was that she kind of she said it was cultural appropriation, which is this really nebulous phrase. I saw you asking about it on Twitter. We'd ran some really good pieces by Yozushi, formerly of this parish, about it. And he wrote, for example, um, about the use, the recasting of Khan in the Star Trek film as Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, and there was lots of talk about that at the time about why wasn't that a, an Asian character? And he said, well, actually, if you're going to cast a terrorist, it's actually quite a radical thing now to do to cast a, a posh white guy right it, in in some ways that, that that remixing is is interesting and it's something that i think about a lot when i write about been writing about theater criticism because there's a lot of stuff about recasting and race and gender blind casting there and there's some ways in which kind of breaking down barriers is seen to be liberating and in other ways like when cultural appropriation gets involved it's seen to be uh, domineering or kind of theft, I guess, in this way. And I think this is where what it, the complaint came down to was the fact that Jay Miller is essentially profiting from a culinary tradition that has been, you know, dismissed and downgraded for a long time. But that's not your issue with the jerk rice, is it? You have a different issue. My with the issue rice. with the jerk rice is the jerk rice is disgusting. <laughs> um, so, so the reason why I asked about it on Twitter is that I have a very strong uh, and immediate aversion to the term cultural appropriation and mostly when i see it in arguments i kind of reflexively roll my eyes i'm always slightly unnerved when i feel something strongly but i can't mm. really um i can't really show my own working so i kind of went look i'm i'm instinctively um a skeptical of this as an idea what is some yeah what what is the most convincing yeah what's some convincing stuff i should i should read and people uh, very kindly sent me a lot of interesting things maddeningly and one of the one of the ones that i think is the most interesting that i definitely agree with dorian linsky wrote a great piece of the guardian about the wearing of native american like war bonnets at festivals and you basically sort of see young white women on the shoulders of someone with this and like to do that in the context of america where you know the native americans were it was kind of a systemic genocide against them basically all their cultural symbols were erased they were you know herded onto very small plots of land deprived of land rights to then just go oh but their their feather headdresses are so beautiful they're such a spiritual people that i can see is is an incredibly offensive act to do within that particular context yeah i think so something like dreadlocks is harder though because there are independent traditions through which dreadlocks are uh, you know arriving kind of holy men in india versus caribbean versus rastafarian um and i think that's that's an issue i so i think my um my kind of feeling having asked for this reading list gone away and, and read it and then sat and sort of thought about it for a while is 
um, and I wish I had come up with this phrase uh, myself. So someone tweeted and saying, I think the problem is, is um, it's three bad ideas and one good idea, idea wearing a, wearing an adult's coat as it were. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. Like in the trench coat. Yeah. And I think the thing with the, you know, the wearing of a headdress is the reason why wearing, um, wearing a headdress is, is disrespectful is it is ultimately like a, a Victoria's a Victoria cross or some other award that has a, cultural meaning now the reason why i wouldn't in this parallel universe in which i'm a catwalk model wear a victoria cross is because i know that that is deeply disrespectful and something that many people find disturbing that a victoria cross is my culture uh i think doesn't really come come into it but this is the thing i think this happens a lot online when things are kind of talked about in a way that actually takes away from the fact that what you're talking about is disrespect or rudeness particularly right it's like the way the word problematic gets used just to mean something that is bad and it's kind of well but every like the whole everything is problematic as per the tumblr like actually meet you know things are saturated in meaning and i think that cultural appropriation often gets used as a quite a lazy there's a great phrase a thought stopping cliche right and actually people don't explain why it's bad to wear a victoria why it's bad to burn a poppy what's you know and 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 it, you know that i think that stuff is 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 more useful to actually have to do the do the work of explaining why yeah and i think um so the kind of because I, you know, I've also been trying to unpack why am I, why am I so immediately skeptical of it? And I think, particularly when it comes to, yeah, and obviously food is one of my interests, hence my increasing uh, expansion. Uh, but the the reason why I'm always a bit skeptical about it about food is ultimately um, I'm not better at cooking varieties of hummus because of the bits of my ge- my genes and culture which are Ashkenazi right I'm I can cook hummus because I've read I've read several recipes of it and I've done it multiple I times I think food is particularly troublesome um, when you're talking about this because actually most food doesn't come from where it started from so there's a book uh, published called The Form of Curry spelled C-U-R-Y in Britain I think about 1343 we had curry before we had potatoes before we had sausage and mash and yet sausage and mash is seen to be a very British dish and curry is seen as being Indian we had ravioli in the middle ages right things move around actually most of the staple grains are not in the place where they originally came from fundamentally what did people do when they traded across nations they took their food with them they took their you know they, they you can grow plants in lots of different climates yeah. um, and the great Marcella Hassan uh, you know arguably the most influential and important Italian chef of the 20th century was born in Italy, but she did all, she learned to cook uh, and did all of her writing. Uh, well, actually, apart from her last book, which she wrote in Florida, last two books, doesn't matter, in New York. Yeah. And I think the odd thing is, I think a, a lot of the these terms from the States, I often feel kind of have this weird thing where because, because there's still not a mainstream criticism of capitalism, there are lots of kind of criticisms of kind of, various excesses of capitalism right so the the problem with jamie oliver well one of the problems with jamie oliver is that because he is a in culinary terms a, a rock star mm. uh it's easier to sell something if the word jamie oliver is in front of it that goes for his dubious paella recipe his 15 minute meals which when i used to work in a bookshop i hated selling those books because people would i'm not kidding bring back a food stained book go yeah. this didn't take 15 minutes, yeah. minutes and it's just like i mean i know that that's true but also i'm not going to take back a book which has gone yeah the 15 minute meal thing is a lie um yeah but because uh of because i think he is a good tv presenter right he was was a good uh, telly chef because of his um his his fame it's easier to sell things if you have this kind of like 
already successful white bloke as the face of it. I mean, yeah, I think well that's true. But I, again, it's the I, I, one of the things that here's a here's one here's something that I would only say in the privacy of the podcast. I don't think there's any point talking about. Actually, I did write a Guardian article once about um, yellow face and drag. I think there's a really interesting thing about why we're so relaxed about drag. Um, and I think drag is great and liberating and, and really wonderful. However, it does have enormously misogynistic elements with it, this idea of referring to women as fish, for example. Um, and it plays on stereotypes of women often as kind of creature and hysterical and nagging and whatever. Mm. And everyone's kind of totally okay with that. And yet they... So we need to have a paradigm that explains why that's okay and why blackface and yellowface aren't okay, right? I mean, isn't the thing that ultimately drag doesn't take away jobs uh, that, right. women, that female actors could take? Whereas uh, blackface and yellowface started out life partly as, you know, I'm not going to pretend there were hundreds of out of work black actors. I'm not pretend there weren't there were hundreds of black actors in Tudor England going, I could have been a contender if only I'd got that role in Othello. <laughs> but um, but that, a welcome that, outing for the trailer boys. But that but that that is 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 kind of to me the the root of the problem. Right, and also um, the fact that the that blackface was based around stereotypes. It was an exaggerated form of characteristics, right? I think that's the thing, is that it was a parody and not a loving parody, like a very dismissive, demeaning parody. But this is what I mean. It's more. In, it's always more interesting to explain the roots of why, rather than just slap a label yeah, on that it. Thing is, I think it's one of those things where, kind of in many ways, one of the many ways in politics is not like food, is it's helpful in food to have a label going, you know, best before, well, ignoring... I'm not going to get into my objections to some best before dates. That is a subject for another pod. But um, yeah, it's, it's you know, to get labels like you know suitable for vegetarians doesn't contain gluten. Uh, that's not a useful way of communicating why something is a problem uh, mm. politically or in this case culinarily. Right? If someone ate that jerk right jerk rice and and believed that they liked jerk and then ordered jerk chicken in a restaurant, jerk. they would probably be disappointed by what they found. Um, and I think that is the sort of root of the problem. Although the other kind of but then interesting... Chinese cuisine has been enormously bastardized, and I think that's really fascinating. Like there is whole what's it called General Tso's chicken? That's a massive Chinese uh, dish in America, and it's mm. just invented wholesale. And there's a whole argument about tikka masala and whether oh, or not tikka, that was tikka masala is definitely just invented uh, in Wolverhampton, uh, right? Uh, in uh, the yeah, 1970s. it has been. Tra- they have found the. Um, the ancestral kitchen, the mitochondrial uh, kitchen. But I think the other interesting thing about it, right, is there's, there is actually a, an interesting uh, power imbalance here, but it's not, it's actually between trading nations of the global South and um, the the G7, right? So, the, well, okay, lots of, I was about to say no one thinks anything, obviously lots of people continually object to the various food protectionisms around Cornish pasties, you know, champagne, Past, sorry. Yeah, I'm pasty, they're pasties. Right, pasties. Okay, right. Cornish pasties, champagne, yeah. um, Brie, you know, various camembert. cheeses you can't... Yeah. Um, but, dis- and, but despite the idea that some Brexiteers have that after Brexit, these uh, protections will, will melt like, um, like snow, um, that, of course, is not true. Uh, Cornwall will continue to send marginal conservative MPs to Westminster who will continue to feel pressure to uh, protect... Yeah, the, pasty, their, the their, noble pasty. Yeah, to, and and be, but because Jamaica is not a power player in any trade negotiation, this idea that you could... You know, there, is, there are very few recipes uh, in... The rest in you know in the developed world where you would be able to label something with its uh, you know with its central ingredients missing and and not have to cut 
hide behind something like jerk style or Caribbean flavor or whatever. Now, that to me, I think, is another example of why cultural appropriation is not a particularly useful phrase, because it doesn't actually move the conversation on to, but there's this thing called imbalances in trade, or but there is this problem that Essentially, Jamie Oliver exists as a uh, you know a brand, yeah. and all all you know there is no Jamie Oliver recipe book, and you are not better off buying another recipe Ooh, book. Harsh. But also that there was a thing called colonialism, and it took enormous amounts from places, and now it won't even let them have their own culinary traditions, right? Which is what I think some of the jerk rice stuff is about. Well, I think it's thing is I do think there is an example of right, yeah, it's the kind of classic of like you know you could have got someone else to. You, you you could have given someone else to if, if I you think wanted... your point about jobs is really right actually which is I think if you had a Caribbean origin chef who was peddling bad jerk rice or it would then be seen as they were rewriting the rules of jerk rice or this was jerk rice for the modern age or whatever it was but that's the that's the problem isn't it is that actually Jamie Oliver sits so dominant on in TV because because of who he is and the background that he comes from that it's squeezing people out to, to the margins and I guess that is the issue when because it comes up a lot about the casting of actors as well and should you cast X actor in Y role that's not whatever it is and what I think is fundamentally at heart that is often a complaint about the lack of opportunities given to particular types to women to people with disabilities to ethnic minority actors right yeah and i think one of the slight problems with the and yeah i mean i i think the thing i've essentially concluded from my uh from my re- well obviously all conclusions are always interim conclusions but my interim conclusion is is the, the stuff about it, it as a term that is useful is not unique enough to be worth rescuing from the stuff about it as a term than is is useless and then the way that it gets used on the internet eventually lapses into my mind a very almost like like a race bar like a kind of like there are certain immutable aspects of people that they should stay in their lane forever right and that's a bit where i think it tips into really kind of quite cultural conservatism well yeah you know white people don't consume other cultures because part of my original suspicion of it as a term originates from the fact when i first heard at university it was from the mouths of the kind of person who would say either in a coded or just uncoded way that they were essentially against miscegenation, right? Then they regarded uh, people like me as uh, in- innately uh, problematic. That's, that's really interesting because always... it's now become a very much like a woke left thing. Yeah, so you but... get like this 17-year-old who got told off for wearing a, like a, it was a chong sam to her, a Chinese, traditional Chinese dress to her prom. But there has always been that, uh, an undercurrent in parts of, you know, kind of parts of the, of the left, uh, particularly parts of various minority left, you know, left left wing group who do uh, have uh, deeply troubling views about uh, minorities. Uh, yeah, about sorry about yeah about people from um, from mixed race backgrounds. Right, Though that has always been an undercurrent as well. So I think in some ways it's not so much that that's moved from right to left. It's an, a bunch of people who use it on the left do not associate it with that type of person, but. I but think it's I also do very strongly associated to be have stable categories because one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this right so you had Dawn Butler um, who's Labour shadow minister and also Clive Lewis who's mixed race arguing with James Cleverly who's one of the Conservative deputy chairman am I right yeah um, who is also mixed race and there was a kind of undercurrent to that about this idea about can you be black and conservative right and actually shouldn't uh, you know it's not the party of equality labor's the party of equality and who gets to own the idea about who gets to call what racist i thought that was definitely a kind of strand that was running into it i i couldn't quite unpick well yeah because i thought there was a there was definitely a an element of with uh james cleverly's intervention although i mean i i I agree with him it's not a useful uh critique of of the bad rice 
to say that it's cultural appropriation, but um, of kind of this sort of, you know, like he's he's a lot smarter than he pretends to be on Twitter. He knows the button and he's pressing with right, he's uh, doing the kind of conservative activists right? Then they like to see like, you know, they like to be told by a mixed race person that then, then Britain is great and Britain is okay. Because his central point about, oh, we've we've always borrowed. It's just like, I mean, dude, that's not borrowing. Yeah, like... Yeah, like truly, or, yeah. so many countries around the world are grateful for our legacy of going around and borrowing things we, we, from them. Yeah, we definitely did not borrow tea. Yeah, um, we, we borrowed the Elgin marbles. One day we might give them back. Yeah, Who can um, say? And so it was one of those things where it's just like, oh, we have someone... Uh, arguing against a bad present-day take against uh, some rice with a really bad historical take about uh, how these things uh, came to be here in the first place. Um, but I just think ultimately, the you know, as, as I will duly write up for the website, that the, the central problem is that the rice is bad. You would send it back if you received it in a restaurant. And 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 that you say this, but I like really bland food, so but I might you wouldn't like, like it. it either. Because what it really <laughs> the the thing I find weird about it is what it really reminds me of is is that um, when my partner goes away, I am not very good at cooking. You go feral for myself, right? right? We all go feral because okay. when you've got another person, you're kind of like, well, I can't just eat this straight from the pan. Or and you know I do need to ensure that all of the the, the food groups are integrated and not mm-hmm. I'll just boil some chickpeas and have them as an extra pulse on the side, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And the the jerk rice really taste, tasted of, oh, I know what I'm going to have when I get home, a pie here. You open the... That's the, literally not a thing I've ever you thought. Open the spi- Who's got time for that? You open the spice rack and you're like, oh, there's no saffron in here. You open the next thing, you're like, oh, there's... And then you're just like, oh, well, I've got these spices and some jalapenos that... I've seen, you know, they're not off, but they're starting to look wrinkled. And you make something and you eat it and you're like, well, this isn't as bad as I feared it would be at the start, but I wouldn't eat it again. And that is yeah. what it tastes like. It is ultimately... Ingredients. It it, yeah. It tastes like leftover rice. Um, you know, kind of like, oh, and today I'm going to make a... Sometimes when I go away, Jonathan will send me a photo of his dinner, which will be like sweet potato, goat's cheese and red peppers. And you're like, what is that? Those, those flavours don't go together at all. And he's like, well, it's what was in the fridge. So it's basically, it's bad fridge rice is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we've sorted that whole thorny issue out. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at UH1.com. And now the next in our series of I Can't Believe It's Not Brexit. Emily Andrews, Associate Director at the Institute for Government, has joined us to talk about public services. So, Emily, my conception of public service really since 2010 is that there's just been a lot of cuts. What else has been happening apart from that? So cuts have been happening. In 2010, the government came in. Uh, the coalition said they were going to reduce the deficit and controlling spending on public services was one way of doing that. So some services have seen big cuts. Prisons seen around 16% cut. Actually, they've had a slightly bigger cut and it, so that's an uptick since uh, last year. Police have seen a 17% cut in spending. Um, adult social care spending has been cut. In other services, things like hospital and GP, spending's risen, um, but actually uh, demand has risen even faster. So they're having to do more. So obviously, if you're having to do more, um, an increase in spending feels like a cut. Um, 
But in the end, it's not a cut in spending that the public really cares about. Okay, the public don't mind if spending goes down. What they mind is if their service is getting cut, if they're finding it harder to access services, or if the quality is getting worse. The coalition said that that wasn't going to happen. They said they were going to manage to make efficiencies so that they could deliver the same or even more for less. For the first few years, they managed it. If austerity had ended in 2014, they probably would have been all right and everyone would have said that George Osborne had done a fantastic job. Problem is, signs of stress started to appear to appear in the run-up to 2015, but spending cuts have continued. So why did uh, the cuts sort of work, not necessarily in an economic sense, but in terms of a not hitting service provision sense until 2014? What changed? So... If you want to control spending on a service, there's a few different things you can do. You can decide to ration it. You can decide to reduce the scope of the service. Sentencing reform would be one of those, or you could ration access to certain health services. You can also decide to allow the quality of a service to fall, right? So the A&E waiting times target, for example, could be increased from four hours to six hours. Um, And you can also try and use technology to fundamentally change the way a service operates, or you can try and integrate services to kind of smooth the the boundaries between them. All of those things are really hard. They're either politically hard or operationally hard. So those aren't really the things that the government did. Instead, they took on more kind of short-term belt-tightening measures, which was holding down wages, so that's the pay cut, which we don't have anymore, but also cutting staff numbers. And you can do that for a while, um, but um, after a while, your staff start getting annoyed that they're not getting paid. And also um, the strain um, of having to do more starts to show. And it was around kind of 2013, 14, that those pressures of those belt tightening measures started to bite. So that's when things like any waiting times, prison violence start creeping up. So you talked there about the, the pay cut, which has now been scrapped. But uh, in the case of lots of services, there's no extra money available for that. So schools being an example where head teachers are basically being told, you've got to start paying your staff more. Find this find this money, where, where else, wherever it could be. So what effect is that going to have with scrapping the pay cut? So um, in schools, the pay cut, what what, the, what has happened is that the, top, the Department for Education are actually going to fund um, the extra money uh-huh, um, that's right. being given to teachers between the 1% that teachers were going to get anyway and the between uh, 1.5 and 3.5% that um, teachers will get. Um, but it's the Department for Education who are going to have to find that money, not the Treasury. And that's something that we've seen happen quite a lot. So, for example, schools got an extra $1.3 billion, um, last year. Um, in order to uh, kind of smooth the transition onto the new funding formula, which changed the way that um, money was being distributed. Um, but again, that was paid for outside of the Department for Ed- um, from other parts of the Department for Education budget, not for the school's budget. Um, and that's a kind of pattern that we've seen repeating where the kind of the urgent, the frontline stuff that people really care about get protected and money's getting funneled there. But some of the other things, maybe the more preventative things, um, the more upstream things um, are getting squeezed. That's the story in the NHS, isn't it where the NHS budget has been ring fenced, but preventative medicine isn't part of that, which is you, you solve your immediate problem maybe with a bit more cash, but unfortunately, you're, every person who doesn't quit smoking, every person who doesn't change their diet is a kind of future NHS payment waiting to happen. Absolutely. And we've seen a reduction in spending on community care. There was originally a reduction in spending in GPs, but then that was reversed. We've now seen a big increase in spending on GPs. The problem is with things like primary care, um, On the one hand, you hope it's going to divert um, some of the demand away from hospitals if more people are kind of getting dealt with by GPs or in the community. Um, But the problem is there's also something called supply-induced demand, which means when you increase access to services, more people turn up and it's not necessarily actually going to um, kind of ease the pressure on hospitals, at least not in the short term. But that's very politically sensitive, isn't it? Because that's what the argument that Ian Duncan Smith made about, uh, I think it was him, about food banks, right? Which is that if you just provide more food banks, people are just going to turn up and ask for more food. 
So, I mean, supply-induced demand is a kind of well-documented uh, phenomenon in the health service. Um, it's not something that has no limits to it, um, but it's something that needs to be managed really, really carefully when it comes to deciding how you're going to kind of manage your uh, your health service again in the long term. And it's like all of these things that are going to that might save money or should theoretically save money at some point. They're hard and they take a long time, and you're not going to be able to bank savings really, really quickly. And that's something that the last few governments have really experienced. If you were um, a senior Downing Street official looking forward to the next election. What is the... So we've already seen kind of prisons erupt uh, from from the impact of public sustaining health. In terms of where you sit in the IFG, what do you think the bit of the public realm that is the most uh, likely to erupt next? So um, so prisons, absolutely. Um, and adult social care actually also is still kind of under real strain. Um, uh, but actually, adult social care is kind of part of a larger set of problems that are going on in local government. Um, so, you know, I don't know if you guys have heard of the Barnet Graph of Doom uh, that was uh, produced in 2011 in, uh, in Barnet Council. And it showed that um, as that spending on adult social care and children's social care was going to take up more and more of their revenue. And by the time they got to their to the mid-20s, there'd be no money to pay for anything else. So spending on things like waste, on roads, on libraries, on other cultural services that local government provide, they've been squeezed a lot, okay, by around 30% um, since 2009-10 in order to protect spending on adult social care, which has also fallen, and children's social care. Um, and what's really challenging is that at a national level, we don't have a picture of what's happened to those services, and neither does central government. Okay, on the one hand, um, that those kind of decisions sit with local government; they're their own tier of government, and, and you know it's up to them to make those decisions. Um, but in a, in a kind of democratically accountable uh, uh, system, where the central government still basically makes all the decisions which determine how much money local government has, it's a real problem that central government can't really say what's uh, kind of happening to our parks and what's happening uh, to our cultural services um, at a national level. Um, and they're, they're definitely driving towards a cliff edge, as we've seen with Northampton and, and now um, kind of problems about East Sussex. But we can't say for certain how close how many other councils are to the edge. That, I think that's fascinating because Northampton is an example, right, which is a Tory controlled council and it's very heavily dominated by the Tories. And it's an area with lots of Tory MPs as well. And one of them is finally broken cover. And that's another big problem in terms of accounting at local government is that if you have all the governing party represented at both MP constituency level and council level, it is in their interests not to pipe up and say, you've set us completely impossible budgets, we can't we can't do them. Well, so one of the thing that lots of uh, people in those two councils, some of the MPs will say privately, is that the problem was the, the council tax freeze meant they couldn't raise revenue. How fair do you think that criticism is, that the council tax freeze was a big... I, I mean, I think it is fair that the... You know, there are so there are councils who have managed who've kept their council tax low and, and have managed to make efficiencies. But and I think I think part of the problem is that all local authorities are kind of a victim of their own success. That local government has actually probably been one of the most successful kind of parts of government when it comes to making efficiencies. They've taken huge amounts of money out and kind of, you know, it's not like there's been national outcry. I mean, there's been a lot of attention to libraries, but around what's happened to our environmental services, it's not really kind of peaked through to the public consciousness. Um, but the problem is because they were so kind of happy to show how well they were doing, it's now much harder for them to say, actually, we, we can't we can't keep going anymore doing the same thing. 
Well, Emily Andrews, this is um, fascinating. And I'm, I would hope, hope that you would come back on the podcast because there are, it turns out, quite a lot of things happening that aren't Brexit. And it's nice to talk about them sometimes, although maybe not the most optimistic. Um, should uh, When you you know you spend your time mired in this stuff, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about the state of public services in Britain today? As the Institute for Government is an independent organisation, I feel scrupulously neutral about the question. Right, good. Well, come back and be scrupulously neutral again. That was Emily Andrews of the Institute for Government. Now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us? Do you have a You Ask Us this week, Stephen? Yeah, shouldn't we have talked about my cover story <laughs> rather, rather than my feelings about jerk rice? You um, have strong feelings about the rice. Um, for, so I, do you want me, I'll do the praise of your cover story. Yeah. For, so this week in the magazine, you've written about uh, the possibility of a Labour split. And I thought the interesting thing... Well, there's many interesting things about your um, story, but one of them was definitely about the fact that it's very much like when, not if, right? Some people have definitely, I think the quote that ends the piece is, you know, that kind of about the stages of grief. They've gone through anger, bargaining, denial, and now they're at acceptance and then they just know they're going to go. And for some people, it's a tactical calculation. And for some people, it's just, I can't campaign for Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. Um, so the only question is, is really when. But in the course of reporting it, what surprised you? So I think there are a couple of things which surprised me in the course of it. I think the first was actually the, Weirdly, the identities of the people who went, no, I've decided it's time to go, uh, were, and obviously those, they're all anonymous, but they will not be the people who you uh, you think. Uh, lots of the ones who kind of thought are much more in a kind of like, well, we've got a... So you mentioned, for example, um, Lucy Powell, who accidentally posted, a uh, was a form of shadow education sector under Ed Miliband, um, posted accidentally into the women's PLP, going, we're useless, we're just completely useless. And had to sort of go, oh, sorry, uh, that was a bit stupid. She's definitely not going. Yeah, so she's definitely not uh, not someone who wants to go. I think there are two interesting things. One, I think the, the, the number of divisions... So I know that there are lots of divisions among people who don't like Corbyn and the Labour Party, and one of their big problems is they don't really agree on anything else. Yeah. I was intrigued, actually, at the fact there is... One of the kind of structural divisions is there's a group of people who go... Yeah, someone did say something to me like, well... Look, all that unifies the people, these people, is they don't like Jeremy Corbyn. I don't like Jeremy Corbyn either, but I kind of think you need to have a. They said, yeah, you've got to have a kind of a stronger basis on for for a new movement than that. Um, right, because the Corbyn critics in the party span from you know West Streeting from on the right of the party through to to Kamuna, who I would put on now the centre left. Of the well, party. well, I think so. The weird, Treated lots of people on the soft left, as was. Yeah, I mean, so the weird, the weird thing is, yeah, we're kind of with what, what are, what is, what are Chakramuna's politics is, uh, is no, no, no. I mean, I, 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 I realize it sounded like I was being sarcastic when I was like, is an interesting question, but is actually an interesting uh, question because there are some things which he's always been very firm on. This he was originally seen as on the soft left. Now he's kind of. Uh, seen as kind of you know a, a mandelsonian or whatever uh i mean but then in, there are people who genuinely think that you and i are right wing so what does he, what does anything even mean anymore i mean do yeah. you remember that mad thing that got circulated and it had i think you managed to be center right and i was right wing and i was just like and what and then i mean i, mean, I was particularly aggrieved by that because i'm definitely to your right but i think there's, there's <laughs> no, but literally people on the internet don't know that i think you should go out wearing like i don't know like a big tony blair mask or something mm. there's the only way to communicate it to them but the the I think the big difference is, is I think so 
that is just people be on the internet being strange. Whereas, um, whereas, isn't it, almost everything in modern life is that? These whereas, days. Chucker's politics have taken. Um, I mean, I'm not sure it's actually well, he's very anti-Brexit, right? And it's kind and of turn. like, yeah, but, it just overrides everything else, really, for him. I would say at the moment, yeah, that's the thing. So I think there are there's there's a group of people for whom Brexit is the most important issue. And then everything else has got to be secondary. Yeah, kind of. So these are the Brexit first, as we called them in the story, right? Yeah, and then there are people who are trying to policy platformers who are trying to kind of say, well, actually, if we're going to leave Labour, we can't just go. We want to be the anti-Jeremy Corbyn party. We've got to stand for something. Yeah, and some of them. So one of them said, "Well, look, the first step to being a viable breakaway is having a policy platform beyond not liking him." Yeah, and they said, "And who knows? Maybe if we had one of those." Our internal position would improve, so we wouldn't need a split either. What are the big things that they disagree about, though? Because my impression was there was lots of disagreement with Jeremy Corbyn that was in the lines of, well, obviously it'd be lovely to be you know, in favour of immigration, but the electorate won't wear it. So how much of it was that, and then how much of people who actually genuinely are in that kind of Liz Kendall position, well, the, the platform that she ran on in 2015, which I would say is a kind of neo-Blairite platform that was okay with privatisation, that was okay with deficit reduction? Well, I think the weird thing for a lot of these people is that they, while they might go, I don't see the point in water nationalisation, they would broadly agree with the 2017 uh, uh, manifesto because it's ultimately a kind of fairly vanilla social democratic. Yeah, mm. They would have issues with some of the spending priorities in it. Uh, but, you know, it, it's not an ideological divide. It's really an argument about the final destination. And one of the things I, the, doing the reporting for this piece, really brought home is a large group of people who, who backed Yvette Cooper and Liz Kendall uh, essentially feel that what they need to do is just be more, exp is, is start explicitly arguing for social democracy rather than like, you know, so the, the really, actually the most interesting thing to me was picking up the phone and having these lunches with people where you kind of do my spiel about, you know, well, what now for the, you know, for the whatever you want to call it. And actually, interestingly, the the label you have for yourself is hugely revealing of where, where you think, whether or not you, you know, if you're a Corbyn skeptic, whether or not you think you should split. Um, if you describe yourself as a Labour moderate, Sorry, I realised I was unable to keep the eye roll out of my head. My, my <laughs> no, you can really there. hear it. Yeah. Um, then you, you're a stay and fighter, essentially. If you describe yourself as a social democrat, you're mostly in a kind of maybe we should leave, but let's have a policy platform. And first. one of the things I thought was interesting about that was you said that you know the choice might be taken away from people. Um, Chris Leslie, who's an MP in Nottingham East, yeah. um, uh, is known to be a big target for deselection. And actually, if he you know if he gets driven out, uh, uh, then there might be other people who will go, well, hang on a minute, there is no place for people like me in this party anymore. I'm you know my activists are going to come and eat me. And we know that there are other. MPs in that situation where their CLPs are very Corbynite, very led by momentum activists and really might just chuck them out anyway. One of the most interesting things I thought from your reporting was the Merseyside as a kind of site of deselections um, because of the remnants of militant tendency there and the well-organised um, kind of momentum and Corbynite left. And their targets for deselection, you're going from Luciana Berger to Frank Field. You know, that's covering quite a big span of opinion within the party. There's no really uniting factor there, except they're not true blue Corbynites. Yeah, I mean, I think so. So, yeah, I think the, the kind of central... So there will be... There'll be a there will be some form of fish or whatever, but whether it's a kind of fairly small event where you have one or two MPs who basically go, I don't think he should be Prime Minister. I can't in good conscience say he should be Prime Minister... So I am 
not going to take the Labour whip and I'll probably run as an independent. Uh, There'll be a couple of people who say that, but obviously that will not be a remotely significant electoral factor uh, anywhere, even in those constituencies. What will change whether or not it is something more like the SBO, a kind of significant number of exits, would be if if people are deselected. The difference in Merseyside is if, if that happens there, basically lots of Labour MPs will go, oh, well, we know that there is a specific character issue, yeah. to uh, to people who have joined the Labour Party in the last three years. Whereas, of course, mo- in most of the country, the average person who uh, voted for Jeremy Corbyn is not a former member of Militant, is, mm. doesn't, you know, does not want to remove their kind of... You know, one of the things I, I feel I failed to successfully work out in this piece when I want to kind of come back to is trying to work out what for Labour MPs the kind of MP at which they would start to worry is. Kate Hoey and Frankfield, people go, well, I haven't spent 10 years annoying everyone right and left in my CLP. Uh, there'll be a couple of people who effectively been absentee landlords who people will go, well, I live down the road, so yeah. this person and I aren't the same. But it's who's the kind of non-eaten, right? Who's yeah, the who's... kind of the, the bellwether where you go, ooh, okay. But and that was weirdly both the strength and the weakness of the SDP. The reason why they did as well as they did, and obviously first past the postman, they didn't vote it, but they did do... They got 7.7 vote... million votes against Labour's 8.5 million, right? Yeah, and then so... they ended up with a handful of seats against 200 plus yeah. for Labour. They did do very well, uh, yeah, considering all of the problems but one of the reasons why they got so many MPs was that people were deselected and that bolstered the initial gang of four who had ideological objections. The problem is that in some parts of the country, they got people who were deselected for political reasons who were quite good at politics. But they also had a number of people who were deselected because they were lazy and a bit useless. Well, that did happen a lot in 2015 when the SNP wave crashed over Scotland, right? Is there were lots of people who went, well, that was a terrible result for us. But on the other hand, there were MPs who had basically not put the hours in, had lived in London, you know, couldn't tell you where the constituency was on a map. So there were, so there, there, it wasn't complacency exactly, but there was a kind of, actually, no wonder that happened sort of vibe about it. I think the difficult thing now is that, um, do you know, one of the most striking things I read this week was a guy who went to see Jeremy Corbyn in conversation with Yanis Varoufakis at the Edinburgh Book Festival and said, I I had always thought that Jeremy Corbyn was being unfairly maligned by the media, but I went and saw him and I found him kind of rambling and repetitive and he does a stump speech. And I found that really difficult to process because I think it's, you know, and you know, I, I've had many conversations about how we might have failed in reporting or how we could report better on some of this stuff. But, you know, that wasn't a thing that was not said during Jeremy Corbyn's leadership campaign, right? That he does have a stock speech, he comes back to, he has themes that he kind of comes back to, he finds it very hard to busk on stuff that he doesn't know about. He's not somebody who's defined by kind of intellectual curiosity. He's, you know, he's got firm opinions on stuff. And we just, as journalists, have completely failed to communicate that to, to people. Well, so what I actually thought was, to me, remarkable about that thread is the, I mean, no one who works for Jeremy Corbyn, when they talk about, oh, well, our PMQ strategy or, you know, you know, the reason why they were excited about the televised debates is because they would, they said rightly at the time, you know, Jeremy knows what he believes. He's good at kind of like, here's my stump speech, here are my views. Uh, so TV debates suit him. PMQs does not, which mm. I mean, obviously was true. As someone who's seen, you know, more Corbyn Labour leadership hustings, I think, than anyone not not you know not currently employed in by Jeremy Corbyn. Asylum, um, yes. It was a weird one to me, partly because yeah, I, I just that just feels to me to be such an obviously true thing about uh Jeremy Corbyn that I was surprised that 
someone would still find it revelatory. Yeah, I find it was interesting to see how much it got retweeted as well. And also with this sort of air, I think there's a really interesting thing because he's prefaced this thread, the guy, by saying, I always thought Corbyn was maligned by the mainstream media, but now I've had this revelation. And it reminded me when I did a, a tweet, when I, I watched one of the momentum hustings where, he, where Jeremy Corbyn told this very affluent looking older audience all the things that he told them there you know about the kind of child having a musical instrument and you've all got a poem inside you and all this kind of stuff I got absolutely slated for saying like I was like you know that uh, these people I was being patronizing to these people maybe I was being patronizing because I found it as a speech kind of ludicrous actually um and and it just it it, it, that worries me slightly and it seems to me particularly that at the moment um we've had Patrick out on the road looking at Corbyn's summer tour and there's a lot of anti-mainstream media and I don't mind you know you've got a lot of criticisms about individual practices of the media you know you and I have talked about the lobby system and parliamentary coverage but I do worry there is a sort of Trumpian style let's decapitate any criticism before it can be even told in the broadest possible terms right that lumps in everything together in this incredibly sweeping way uh, which is ultimately quite bad for democracy because I want to like we talk about the things that Jeremy Corbyn does well, and you're right. I think when he, in terms of like warmth and approachability, actually on the campaign last year, he was incredibly good at that in a way that Theresa May cannot do at all. And I would always say that. But there is this kind of feeling that no, I just don't want to listen to you. You just you've got nothing to say. I know. So the thing, I yeah, the, the difficulty is is we can never yeah we will never definitively be able to tell them. But my instinct is that all of that stuff is actually just an political partisans have Twitter now. Mm. I feel like if um if in nineteen ninety five I had been writing the NS politics column uh, and you know in the same digital context we have now going Blair and Brown are politically aligned but they don't agree with the other someone yes, with like definitely gonna be trouble ahead. hashtag TB for PM would be tweeting at me. Yeah. Oh you're a Benite holdout. Oh you know this this isn't true. Uh and I I can't you know if you look at say polling of um uh, Republican voters about Nixon uh, yeah. in the world. So I'm never that convinced that any of that stuff is new. And I think part of the interesting thing about the success of that thread is it was basically being shared by um, people who want, who were enjoying and it validated their pre-existing mm. belief. The thing I really notice about uh, the kind of Corbyn speech style is there are two ways to write the article about Corbyn not being good at set speeches. And depending on the occasion, I've done both, right? Yeah. I've done the look, this is why you shouldn't underestimate Corbyn in the TV debate. I also, a couple of weeks ago, for example, did a why on earth did Corbyn try and do a detailed focused PMQs? The guy is no more suited to that than he is to, you know, being right. a duck. And and basically, <laughs> the, the two groups of people hated those pieces and felt that they weren't true. They were completely different groups of people on the left. And I'm not really convinced that those groups of people have been brought into existence lately or by anyone. To say. I just think and there's this weird thing that we can... There are two weird things. One, because of social media, those people can actively talk to us in a different way. Yeah. But two, there is a rise of various organisations from Canary, from the New European, from Brexit Central, who are effectively willing to say to groups of voters, are effectively willing to say, actually, no, you're right. Uh, you are right. Then uh, he is brilliant at everything. You're right. Then um, yeah. Then a second referendum would definitely referendum is stopping is, EU yeah, withdrawal. Yeah. yeah. You, yeah. Then essentially the uh, and the the challenge is is that we and it, I think it's all it has always been true that you can just go actually we're just going to pander to but now there's like hard data telling people that they can do that which makes it much harder 
to resist it from an institutional perspective? I think that's the, the thing that's interesting. There was a, a, a great critique of the way that Facebook made fake news, whenever you want to use that phrase, happen because it, it made everything look the same. The architecture of everything looked the same. It was all on that clean blue and white background. It made the National Enquirer look the same as the New York Times. And I think you're right, is that there has been, because of internet journalism, because all websites kind of look the same, lots of things that would look very different in print with all the kind of flagging that you would get do now just look like journalism rather than propaganda when when they are. Anyway, um, uh, by the New Statesman this week, you'll get um, five pages of Stephen's cover story, uh, free, I don't know, tweet from Stephen for every reader. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Do make sure to pick up the NS in all good stores. And if you're a subscriber already, go into all good stores and just move it to where the new scientist is because it's near the front. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.